Welcome back to another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Creek, and I'm with my elliptoidian uh, co-host. Refer back to the last episode if you want to know what that means. Mario Sicoria, Sicoria? Um, and, and Maria Jose Munita. Um, how are y'all doing today? I'm doing great. All right. All right. <laughs> I'm good. So we're officially in November. Are you the type of person that begins listening to Christmas music after Halloween, or are you an after Thanksgiving person? I am a person who never listens to Christmas okay. music. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to spoil. Uh, my view is my view is I don't want to hear it before um, Christmas Eve, um, but uh, in my house, the pervading view is you know mid-October, uh, you know, uh, not quite mid-October, oh, wow. but yeah, as soon as they start okay. playing uh, Christmas music on the radio, uh, my wife and at least one of my sons <laughs> want to listen to, and it drives me batty because wow. because by Christmas time, I'm bored with it. I'm irritated by it, right? So, mm-hmm. all right. Mm-hmm. So, see, you know, Craig, we talked about being nicer. And, <laughs> you know, and, and you mentioned there's always going to be something that sets Mario off. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> how, how can I possibly get him irritated about Christmas? And you found a way. So good for you. I did. All right. Uh, we just lost about three quarters of our listeners. Yeah, well, you know, um, they deserve to be lost, right? Because, you know, I mean, <laughs> wow. come on, man. I, I am, I allow, I typically don't do anything Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. That's just been the family tradition forever. Um, and I used to listen to Christmas music after Halloween, but, but then that started becoming too much. Yeah. And so I, I at least have a soul. So moving on. Um. <laughs> Unlike Maria Jose's, what you're saying, because she doesn't listen to it at all. Now, of course, of course, if I lived south of the equator like Maria Jose, I, I think that it's got to be just a very different Christmas experience, right? I mean, because kind it's of, summertime. Because we import the visuals. Yeah. So right. we have Father Santa oh, Claus yes. dressed like they were. <laughs> it was in um, winter. Yes. In the summertime yeah. here. Yes. So all the people who dress as Santa Claus are just sweating <laughs> under those <laughs> clothes. Uh, and everything, it's kind of wintry, but it's summer here. So it's very awkward. You don't get a Santa Claus with a bathing suit or something like that. You don't get that here. Yeah. Gosh. No, that's fair. That is fair. All right. Um, all right. So we're t- we are uh, talking about today... We had some listeners send in some questions on why are we still using the Enneagram? Why, what, how do we use the Enneagram in our own lives? Why are we still teaching it, doing things with it? Um, aren't you bored of it yet? I am sometimes. I'm <laughs> often bored with it. Uh, we'll start with Maria Jose. Let's start with why do you feel the need to continue to use it? I think that if I were using... Or, and or teaching the same Enneagram as I saw it from the beginning, I would be bored to death. But in our case, we continue to develop the model and find more applications and continue to marvel at how much of an explanatory power it has and also provides tools to grow at different levels. So I think that although I'm using the Enneagram still, I'm using a different version of the Enneagram, which makes it 
fun still, and it continues to be useful. You know, when I ask this question, I wonder, would I still use the Enneagram if I didn't professionally use the Enneagram? And um, and I think so. And, and, and I think the – look, the reason I keep using the Enneagram is because – I haven't fixed the problems yet, right? I mean, you know, uh, it, you know, why do we keep doing this work? Because the work's not done. And um, even though I am not quite as awful as I used to be, you know, I still have my moments. And so I've got to keep doing the work. And the Enneagram's the best thing I know for that. And the reason it's the best thing I know for that is because, yes, there are lots of different applications for it. But, you know, particularly with our approach to it, it's actually really simple. Right. So I just keep asking myself, in what way are you overdoing striving to feel powerful? In what way are you overdoing the navigating thing or underdoing one of the other instinctual biases? And it's a really, really uh, good reminder. Now, I think, too, it's important that it's not the center of my life, right? You, you know, we'll, you know, we'll meet people at you know workshops or conferences or something. They'll say, "Oh, you must talk about the enneagram all the time with your family and blah blah blah." <laughs> and it's like, good lord, no! You know, that's the, you know, and the analogy I always use is if I was a plumber, I wouldn't go home and talk about pipes. But if there was a problem with the plumbing, I'd know how to fix it. So you know, and that's the way I think of the enneagram, and you know how I. Um, why I continue to use it is because sometimes pipes get clogged and, you know, it's uh, it's good to know how to fix that when it does. Can we talk about for each of you, in what ways do you see the overdoing of navigating? Well, the key thing is overdoing it when you should be doing something else, right? Um, there are other, you know, things that need to happen in life. Uh, you know, instead of focusing on work, I, you know, go out and navigate. Okay, uh, so so when we talk about overdoing the navigating, that's one element of it is doing it, you know, at the wrong time or you know too often, too frequently. And then there's the you know we can look at some of the behaviors and the way we misdo or overdo them. For example, gossip is a, a behavior often associated with um, the navigating domain. And I can fall into being a terrible gossip, right? I mean, you know, there was the old uh, Dorothy Parker maybe who said, you know, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, come sit next to me, right? Uh, you know, that's <laughs> that's an overdoing of the navigating domain. And so I can fall into that. And so there's there's lots of ways that that can happen. So is that just, just gossiping or what is that? what does that look like? So gossip's a tricky thing, right? You know, and everybody, uh, it's funny because gossip is a big part in, you know, of the conversation in organizations. You know, people say, oh, there's too much gossip going on around here. And gossip is really just information exchange, okay, about other people. But there can be, you know, maladaptive gossip when we're, you know, oh, did you see, you know, hey, did you hear what Creek did, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, you know, sharing inappropriate information, sharing information about, you know, who's going to get laid off and who's not. You know, it was all kinds kinds of things that information exchange, you know, goes into, you know, malignant sort of gossiping. Uh, but, you know, what, what I always tell my clients is good luck trying to root out gossip for your organization, because that's, that's what people do. They talk to each other and it serves a really important need, right? To, you know, sharing information. So we just try and do it in ways that are appropriate, right? We share information with people who need it. 
uh, and we do it and try try to do it in kind ways, um, you know, mm-hmm. rather than malicious ways. Yeah, depending on who we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> if they deserve it or not. Yeah, you know. Wow. Okay. Uh... <laughs> no, nah, come on. Nah. I'm only being realistic, right? I mean, all of us, you know, will mm-hmm. amongst friends, you know, share negative things about somebody we don't like or you know whatever so um you know uh, it's it's different like sharing something negative is different than making that person out to be othering that person in a way that that simplifies them into a bad other instead of like they're doing this thing and i'm sure like there's they're doing it for a reason that they think is like there's as long as you aren't demonizing the other person, I think that's the difference. Yeah, yeah unless they're a demon. But, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, look. <laughs> no, no. I, you know, I'm having some fun here, right? But, um, yeah. uh, look, we should always try to be kind to people, you know. And, and this leads to the other thing about doing the work. So, you know, the person who, um, you know, sent this question in when I, when I responded. Can, can I respond to, yeah, to the please, question before we move on? I'm sorry. On? I'm sorry, Maria. Is that was a, I, I keep forgetting that I'm not the only one on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> on this world? No. <laughs> um, so I agree with Mario in that overdoing it at, uh, at the expense of not doing other things, it's one of the main problems for me, at least. For me, it's so much fun to just do the navigating stuff and try to understand the landscape and get information about people and, I don't know, plot certain movements <laughs> in different domains of my life. It's just fun. thing that I'm scared of in terms of the navigating domain, it's also the sharing of information. And not even so much about sharing information of, about other people, but about myself. You know, I, mm. as navigators, I have this impulse to share information. And I always find a reason to justify sharing information about anything. Like, for example, uh, my husband always makes fun of me because uh, we were going to move to Spain a few years ago before the pandemic. And he wouldn't tell his family we were about to do that. And everybody at school knew at this, the girls' school and my friends and my family, everybody knew through me that we were moving, <laughs> you know, and he wouldn't tell anyone. Now, both are extremes, but it's just, I think that it's important that certain people have certain information and that's tricky and that's dangerous sometimes. And it's not a good thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're done. So I'm sure... I'm sure when you were uh, younger, not that you're, you're not young now, but when you were younger, right, you weren't these beaming lights of, uh, of conscious awareness. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, like, what, what is, how has the Enneagram helped you evolve into the magical humans you are now? Mm-hmm. Magical <laughs> humans. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I need to say that I don't think I'm a magical human, but... Neither do we. (laughs) Good. I think that it's just so many things. But what comes to mind first is I think I've become less reactive because I take things less personal, understanding 
where other people are coming from, why they're doing what they're doing, what they're almost programmed to do, has helped me not only be more compassionate towards them, but just not take things so personal. So that gives me more, a better ability to react in a more mature way. Um, and I also understand myself better so I can process more quickly my response uh, and leave out what can be, could be less useful or less adaptive. So I think that in general, understanding human nature has allowed me to have more mature relationships, interactions. That's one so of the things. So it's created more awareness, like it's given you more handles on why you're doing what you're doing? Yes, and what, how, why other people are doing what they're doing. So my reaction to it is just more mature, more, there is a bigger kind of, there's more peace or, and uh, sometimes I'm not scared by, but kind of like taking, by taking things not personal, maybe when they are personal, uh, mm -hmm. like I, but well, that's another problem to solve. Mm. Can you give a specific like personal example of maybe, oh, I would have like 10 years ago and I would have like reacted much differently in this situation, but because of this thing that I know about myself through the Enneagram, like I can react differently now. I think that uh, parenting, it's one of the places where I can see this more vividly and where it has had the biggest impact. Like I understand that I'm as a one, which I don't like to talk about me as a one, but my strategy is type one. It's like striving to feel perfect. I have this need to feel perfect. And when I'm doing my motherly duties, I tend to want to do it perfectly because it's important. And I can see how when my kids don't appreciate or don't obey me or don't do what I expect them to do, I very quickly go back to, oh, I'm not perfect. And because I understand that, I can step back and just react according to the situation's needs and not get mad at myself or them because of it. Hmm. So, uh, and again, it's more mature, uh, more attuned to what's really happening and not to my autopilot that sends me to, I'm not perfect, things are wrong, I need to do something about it and get angry. Mario, same question. What was the question? How did you become your magical being? My, okay, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. and a specific like story example of... Well, again, uh, I'll say the reason I keep working with the Enneagram is because the work's not done, right? And, uh, you know, at my advanced stage of youth... Um, the, um, I have mellowed and I have tamed some of my more problematic behaviors and attitudes, but they still pop up every so often. Right. And so, um, for me, the, the work with the Enneagram, the Enneagram is in two ways. And I completely agree with what Maria Jose said, that understanding other people and being less reactive toward them is a huge part of it. Right. I, because I don't assume that people should think the way I do or act the way I do, I don't get frustrated as frustrated with them when they don't. 
Okay. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, I corrected myself. I know. I, I, I caught myself there. You're, <laughs> you're, you're <laughs> lucky that I was muted <laughs> because I would have. It's <laughs> on a spit take there with your yes. wine, right? So, yeah, yeah. you're saying, yeah. uh, so, I'm not drinking uh, wine today. <laughs> so, um, it's straight liquor today. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so that's a big part of it. Now, the other piece of it is that the Enneagram uh, can give specific prescriptive advice, right? So, for example, I know that these things tend to help eights grow or help ones grow. So it points me, it reminds me to keep working on those things. But an, another big piece of it, and for me, probably the most important piece, is to learn to work with that kind of quarter second between impulse and action. Right. Where, you know, and there's, you know, forget the uh, Goldman's wife, um, Daniel Goldman's wife uh, wrote a book on this. Goldman was the guy that wrote all about the emotional intelligence. And I forget his wife's name, but she wrote a book. I think it was called like the golden quarter second or something. And about how, you know, we'll have this emotional reaction to something and then we will act. And in between, there's this very small period of time. And what we should do as we work on growing is learn to monitor that, right? Learn to, you know, recognize our reactivity and and take control back of our impulses before we actually act on it. So that's really hard to do. And the more we understand what that pattern tends to be, the easier it becomes. So for me, that pattern is typically lashing out, right? Or, you know, dominating or controlling or whatever it is. And the more I can be aware of that, remind myself, oh, yeah, as an eight, you tend to do this. Or as Mario, you tend to do this. And this is why we call you an eight, because this is what eights do. I can catch myself there. Now, the other if I give an example of this to, to your point, uh, there's one that always stands out in my mind. And look, I could go through a laundry list of things that I've done in the past of that wounded people, right? Because I'm really, really good at that, right? I mean, I, I, I just am really, really good at hurting people when I want to. And uh, I'm not proud of that, right? I'm kind of ashamed of it. And it's, you know, one of these things that I wish I, I, wish I had focused on curing cancer instead of, you know, yeah. wounding people. But, uh, um, you, know, you know, but, you know, who amongst us sure. is without sin, right? So, um, you know, but I try, I, I want to do that less because I don't like the way I feel afterward. Uh, but just to give one example, I remember years ago, back in uh, my early 20s, in the, it was in the 1980s, and it was a, I had, I had a group of friends, you know, and we would go out doing what, people in their early 20s do, right? And uh, usually I kind of established... What is that, Mario? Uh, I don't know uh, what people do. <laughs> well, it, it's... Uh, honestly, uh, there were some variables that led to memory impairment uh, with a lot of that stuff. Uh, so, um, you know, it's all very hazy for me. But uh, uh, my point is that, you know... So, so here's an illustration. So one time I made the plan, because I always did, and my group of friends come along and say, okay, Mario, you're not driving this time. You know, so-and-so is going to drive. All right, fine. That means, you know, I can do more of those memory-reducing activities that, uh, <laughs> you know, one does. One did. It was yeah. the 80s, right? So so they pick me up and, you know, we start driving to where, 
you know, we're going and it is not the direction. It's not the right direction. And I said, you're going the wrong way. And they said, no, we're not. We're going, we're going to this place instead of where you want it to go. And we arranged this because we always do what you want. And so they felt that they basically had to kidnap wow. me, okay, to do what they wanted to do. All right. Okay. Did they accomplish anything? Well, for that night, you know, but but it was, you know, look, it's, it's you know, well, let's see, how long ago was that? It's 35 plus years ago, and it's a memory that sticks with me, right? Because, wow, I'm such an asshole that, you know, people feel like they literally have to kidnap me to be heard, you know, and to have their needs met. And so, you know, now I'm a little better with these things, right? I have learned to, you know, recognize that tendency in myself. Just we were like, just as we were joking about a few minutes ago, I fall into thinking I'm the center of the universe, right? I mean, whatever time we're, you know, whenever we're planning a time, it's the time where I am, no matter where I am. Right. Was it so, the, be- um, the benevolent yeah, yeah. sun god? Is that is that that's a callback? <laughs> yeah, right, right. So 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 um, look, I I you know I I still have work to do. Okay, and the enneagram is a really good tool for that. Uh, it's not the only tool. Okay, and I think again we really have to be careful about making a religion or a whole philosophy out of the Enneagram, because as we've been talking about, it's insufficient for that. But the things it does really, really well are worth Mm -hmm. keeping around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and working with the Enneagram is not learning the Enneagram or knowing about the Enneagram. It's doing the work, which is different, and that's endless. Mm -hmm. You can, I'm telling you, with, with just the instinctual biases and the strategies, you know, if you just keep coming back to okay, how am I overdoing this striving to feel powerful right now? Okay, that's huge, right? There's a saying in Zen that, you know, Zen is, enlightenment is really easy. Just sit up straight and breathe. And in 20 years of hard work, you'll be enlightened, right? But don't get too distracted by things. Now, this doesn't mean that any Zen practitioner would say, don't read any other books or, you know, you don't need other books because you have Zen or anything like that. But just remember what this practice is and add it to whatever else it is you're doing in order to grow. Why don't you tell us your story, Creek? Nah. I know the listeners want to hear more Creek, right? So how <laughs> yes. Creek, Creek, so you, you know, look, you, you've been working with the Enneagram for what, like six, eight weeks now? <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what what have you learned in that time? Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh man, I, I don't have enough coffee in my system to uh, have a good comeback for that. Uh, <laughs> if I think back over just my my youth that I'm still in, um, I was a much more <laughs> depressed and emotionally volatile person. Not that you could necessarily, it it wouldn't be outwardly focused. It would be inwardly focused. So the tiniest thing would just set a fire my chest. A lot of self-loathing, a lot of just, I'm the problem. I'm the issue, all the things. Um, And through, I mean, yeah, honestly, the Enneagram came into my life at a point where I really needed some structure of how to move about in reality and 
admittedly, uh, I probably clinged on to it a, a little too tightly. But you know, it's when you're in a desperate situation, you just you cling on to what works. So how the Enneagram has helped me is just constantly making me question my reality um, or what I perceive to be reality. So I'm trying to think of specific example, but it's just it's just over time watching the in, the intense the, not that the intense emotions are gone but they are in perspective better i feel bigger than my intense emotions i don't feel like they are controlling me or or overwhelming me and because of that then i can have greater perspective of like oh yeah i did mess up that doesn't mean I'm a terrible person and no one will ever love me. <laughs> um, just means that I, yeah, I can do better next time and that's okay. And so it's just an immense amount of grace and compassion and perspective on just a better way of seeing myself. That perspective shift, I think, is the biggest thing for me. And once that perspective shift like hit, then all the action, it wasn't easy. The action afterwards was not easy, but it was a bigger motivation. It was, a, it was more clear as to what needed to happen. I didn't have to convince myself to do good things for me, to love myself, to be kind to others. It was just like, oh, well, if this reality is true, then this is how I would respond. And then I would respond accordingly. So yeah, that, that would be how the Enneagram has helped me. I'm also, I feel like we also, we talk a lot about um, going back into the instinctual biases. Last question, and then we can wrap up here. But um, we talk a lot about, especially zone of inner conflict, zone of indifference. Um, We talked a little bit about the overdoing of the zone of enthusiasm. So what are some other, like as, as specific as you can get them, examples of how you personally have, use this combination to find the areas that are getting the things that are getting in your way because as you both have said multiple times the instinctual biases are really 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 powerful and and how how can the listener actually grasp the power of these three things and how they interact with each other there are so many ways and unfortunately we're all navigators so uh, <laughs> the the examples might be similar but i could speak to kind of how I work with my transmitting domain and the kind of the behaviors around the transmitting domain, for example. And I am aware that I have a problem or a near conflict around promoting myself. And some people could say that I don't because they see me posting things on social media, for example. But the way in which I started doing that was hiring someone to do it for me and uh, have someone post it and people think that it's me, but it's actually not me because although I understand that I need to do it, doing it takes requires energy and that energy I prefer to put in something else. So I know that. So for example, uh, automating posts, it's a way because I just, I have to put energy once and a lot of posts get uh, programmed, I mean, to be posted later. So I kind of fool myself 
in some ways so that, not fool myself, but trick myself so that I can overcome this resistance to promoting myself more. Or I also understand that when it's my role, I'm happy to transmit more freely. And I leverage that. I kind of try to enjoy it. I do it more consciously as well. And I understand that that's in me and I can do it in other situations so I can leverage that. So, yeah, th- those are a few examples. Yeah, I'll, um, again, being a navigator uh, like Marie Jose, some of the examples are very similar, but I would agree regarding the social media things, although I think I'm probably more assertive around that than Marie Jose is. Um, and, you know, people might look at my social media and say, or hear me on a workshop or attend a training or listen to a podcast and say, God, if that guy's not a transmitter, what is? Um, but, you know, I'm not. It's an area that I'm stretching into. So there's that piece of it. But if I take a, a different sort of angle on it, uh, one of the things for me is engaging with strangers, right? I mean, I was never one who would talk to clerks in stores or, you know, the, the the taxi driver or something like that, right? I might be interested in them, but I wouldn't I wouldn't engage necessarily unless engaged with, which I think a lot of navigators do. There's this idea that navigators, oh, socials are social. They always want to talk to people. Uh, not really. And, you know, so I have trained myself to talk to people, you know, more aggressively. Like I I love to ask Uber drivers questions, right? I mean, you know, where you're from, tell me this, tell me, you know, so I I engage with people, I engage with clerks and waiters and waitresses and that sort of thing. But it's a trained behavior because it's not- But done in a navigating way. But done in a navigating way. You're you're not transmitting at them. Exactly right. You are asking questions. Exactly right. So it's a a transmitting looking behavior, but you're right, done in a uh, navigating way. And, you know, when it comes to the preserving domain, the recognition is I have to be really, really disciplined in preserving activities. And what I mean by that is set up as many structures to help enhance success as I can, right? Make it as hard as possible not to not do it, you know, because I just I just need a super amount of work and motivation in most things related to preserving. So, so that's the key thing. It's, you know, and also be very clear about not trying to tackle too much in the preserving domain, right? Pick one or two things at a time to work on and then do it in a super disciplined way and getting help, you know, when I can. Yesterday I spent, I spent two hours trying to come up with a budget and it was terrible and I felt disgusting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But something else that I noticed, I was up in the UP upper peninsula, Michigan with the family and we were sitting in this lodge waiting for our, our, our pizza. And this random guy came up and just started chatting with us. And at first I'm just like, Oh gosh, I hate these types of people. Um, like, yeah, I don't have energy to engage you. And my mother, I think she's probably, she's probably a transmitting too. So like she can talk to a wall if she needs to, but for some reason it just wasn't flowing and it just started getting awkward. And so then I realized, like he said he was a teacher and I just asked a question like, what did you teach? And then he said something with psychology and nature and that like, oh, that's like, that's my thing. <laughs> and I switched into podcaster mode and just like right. interviewed him. And like, all he has, it's 
really cool. It ended up being a really cool conversation, but it was just, I needed, I needed a hook and I, I'd much rather watch the conversation happen until it's like something that I want to be a part of. And then I'll just take control of the conversation and, and take it where I want to go, which right. is very much navigating. But I don't do that until it makes, until I'm interested in it, which is probably something I should work on. <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know, because transmitting is about the active engagement of people, right? It's about reaching out and making that connection in some way. And this is where a lot of navigators fall short, right? And they, and they rob themselves of that opportunity to possibly meet an interesting person who, you know, at least interesting to you. And the, so, um, and the people that have known me since I was in high school, they always laugh when I'm like, yeah, I'm in the podcast industry. Like I, I kind of, I talk for a living is most people in high school didn't know I talked like it was that right. quiet. So anyways, this. I think the key to, you know, so, Maria, Jose, and I, you know, make our living using the Enneagram, right? So, you know, when people ask, why do you still use the Enneagram after 30 years? I'd say, well, you know, it's kind of what I do, right? Even if I don't. But still, when I'm not working, it's on my mind, okay, to some extent. And it's on my mind in the same way of the finger pointing to the moon, right? So there's that great Zen story about, you know, Zen is like the finger pointing to the moon, okay? Um we can get distracted looking at the finger and miss the moon. And the Enneagram is the same way. It's a finger pointing to the moon. And a lot of people get really obsessed with the finger, right? Yeah. And then they start to get bored with it because they say, okay, well, all right, I've studied the finger. Okay, Instead of saying, hey, it, you know, look at this direction to something bigger and richer, sometimes we lose sight of the moon and we need that finger again. Right. And that's where we go back to the Enneagram. And, you know, we, we use the finger when we need to. But the other point I wanted to make here is that there are really only two questions to ask. What is happening right now? And what should I do? Okay. You know, there are variations of that question, but those are the two. What is happening to me right now? Okay. And the Enneagram, again, is that finger pointing to the moon of what's happening. Ah, okay, you're doing this thing again, right? Or you're falling into that pattern. And then the next question is, okay, so what should I do to make things better? And sometimes the Enneagram's helpful for that. Other times it's not, but at least it gets us to slow down and to think and to be open to whatever it is we should use as a resource in that situation. Yeah, and the better we define the problem, the more useful the or the easier it will be to find a good solution for it. And I think the Enneagram provides this good framework to define problems. Not every problem, but a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. um, so last thing, we're going to start trying to do this more. So as our listeners send us questions, we're going to try to briefly answer them at the beginning or end of, of episodes as it makes sense. So we actually just received a question via text while we've been recording from our very own Lindsay Marks. I love Lindsay. Lindsay, Lindsay is the best. I, I adore Lindsay. Um, wonderful. She so she she was commenting on the previous episode on uh, on emotions that we just did, and here is her question. So how would someone decide if they're growing in awareness or experiencing confirmation bias? 
in some contexts, couldn't they be the same thing? Uh, especially in context of a person hearing about centers of intelligence for the first time, searching within themselves for confirmation that they are a, quote, body type or other type. How would they know that it was confirmation bias around some crap teaching or... <laughs> I don't know if she's... Lindsay's word. Lindsay's, Lindsay's word. word. Yeah. Not, uh, yeah. <laughs> or that they were actually growing an awareness of something that they previously had not paid attention to. First of all, great question, Lindsay. And uh, thank you uh, for that. It's um, you're, you're asking exactly the right question when it comes to this. Uh, confirmation, we overcome confirmation bias, number one, by being aware of it as a pattern, recognizing that it happens, and then number two, seeking to falsify our assumption, right? Finding counter evidence to it uh, is, is the first step, okay? So, um, you know, and, and, and as I'm thinking about the part of this, like I'm a body type, well, of course, everybody's going to be able to say I'm a body type because I feel my body and I have sensations and all that sort of stuff. So we have to dig into exactly what does that mean and expand the question a little bit and then create some falsifiable variables to that, right? So because I even wrestle with, you know, well, so my first question on this would be, well, what does it mean to be a body type? Okay. You know, you got to give me more than that. We're all body types. Now, the question that I hear when Lindsay asks her question is, you know, is it helpful to say that some types are body types and other types are, you know, heart types or, or, or whatever? And that's a little bit of a different question, but it's an easier one to answer because there's, you know, for me, it's a bit more focused. And again, I would look for disconfirmation. Okay. So for example, if I'm saying, okay, that eights, nines, and ones are body types, but nines are out of touch with their bodies. All right. That's problem number one. Or is, you know, am I really in touch with my body and am I any more in touch with my body than threes are or fours are, or, you know, so forth. Right. So we can start to look for these, you know, and if those answers are all confirming that, yeah, I'm very different. Okay. I feel my body way more than Creek does. All right. Or, you know, every other four or every other two or every other three. How do you know that? Well, see, this is the challenge too, right? So it's, it's really, really hard. But what we try to do is to poke holes in the argument and see if it holds up or how long it holds up. Okay. And what we did there was just try to poke holes in the argument. Okay. So a better question for me is what's my relationship with my body? independent of my type. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's my in, what's my relationship with my emotions and what should I do about it? Okay. So when it comes to confirmation bias, I, I'm not sure that that example question was an easy one to address in a direct way. But if it was something like, uh, you know, eights don't read, okay, or fours are not smart or something like that, right? Um you know, we can, okay. right? We can. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, it's pick on creep. Yeah, I'm, so, right. I'm sorry, kiddo. All right. All right. So, um, you, you know, but really just, you know, we can take an assumption like that and then look for counterexamples. Okay? The other thing it helps to do is to triangulate in some way. Okay. With the triads. You know, 
<laughs> no, no. Well, <laughs> yeah. no, with the way we take in data, right? It's, you know, for example, get a group of people together and say, well, what are you seeing here? Right. Because, you know, the more, you know, and that's the difference between objectivity and subjectivity, right? Subjectivity is something that I see. Objectivity is something that we all see, or at least, you know, for the most part, see. So we want to take, you know, a look at it that way as well. I think that on top of what you were saying, or maybe you said it, but a way to, how do we kind of falsify what we're seeing or try to, what you're saying, but uh, like if I'm a body type, so how would it feel to be a thinking type or a feeling type? And do I resonate with that? So it's try to find alternatives to what I'm thinking that I'm what I think I'm seeing in myself and see if that works too okay so I think that I'm a a two yeah everything resonates with that well would it resonate if I think that I'm a one and how would it feel or would I also see myself doing one-ish things so it's find alternatives to test and see if those work as well. And what I'm also hearing in the question is people's actual experience of finding the centers really valuable in their personal growth and they're discovering certain things about themselves that they haven't discovered before. Okay, so how would you how would you address for me, like as I as I was learning the Enneagram, I'm like, yeah, heart type makes sense. I am the emotions make up my seem to make up the predominant way in which I I put an inordinate amount of weight on emotions than I do my thoughts or sensations. How do you know that? Just <laughs> be, because, well, sure. Well, com- compared to your observations of other people. Right, right, right. And making decisions more based on what I feel than what I thought. And... So I, I guess the, the question I'm hearing is like, yeah, these the centers can create awareness around different parts of how you're processing reality. And how do you know if that's actually you growing an awareness of how you're operating versus um, someone who's just seeing it as a center? I don't know if that's even a good question. I'm trying to reword. So for for me, the question should be, what is my relationship with my feelings? What is my relationship with my body? What is my relationship with my mind? Because when we start asking that question, we get useful information for us. Now, everything you just said, Creek, is not something a three would say. Threes are not going to tell you, oh, I make you know decisions based on my feelings, etc. Okay, But they're so-called heart type as well. But well, we have to explain that by doing some kind of goofy contortion to explain well yeah even though they're not really feeling types they're still a heart type because of this or that or the other thing again how the more you have to explain away your theory the less useful it is in the long term okay so now does it mean that it's not a good starting point look when i was 15 I was reading all kinds of stuff that was helpful for me that now I would not recommend to other people, okay? Because 
you know, and it, it gets back to our astrology conversation, okay? Does it help me to observe myself and think about myself based on the idea that I am a Leo? Sure. How far can I push that, though? Right? How many claims can I make based on the horoscope? And how robust are those claims? So for me, okay, that's fun. Gives me a chance to think about myself. Yeah, look, when I read the description of a Leo, I can relate to that, right? It's the, it's the lion, it's the aggressive, you know, blah, 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 right? So, but there's a lot of other people who aren't eights who can also relate to it and see some things in it, but it just doesn't hold up long enough, okay? So it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting, but what else? Or so what? Okay, become the questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, no. <laughs> so if we're setting the question of the centers aside and we're just more talking about confirmation bias and like more self-awareness around a particular topic, how do we differentiate between those two? So when it comes to our concern that we're falling into confirmation bias, what we always want to look for is a way to falsify our assumptions or find evidence to the contrary of what our belief is. Right. So if, you know, for example, I was to think that, well, you know what, all ones are kind of tight asses and, you know, skinny stick up their butt kind of people. I could look for an example of somebody who is a one, but is not that way. OK, uh, I haven't found one yet. Um, no, but Maria Jose is not, you know, again, I would not describe Maria Jose that way. So we have to clarify what our assumption is, and then just test it, okay? And then we also want to look for not only examples that disconfirm what we're assuming, but we want to look for alternative explanations. Is there another way to explain this thing that I'm seeing? And is that other way of explaining it more robust, okay? Meaning a better explanation that holds up a little bit better. The important thing is, is that we all fall into confirmation bias, okay? And, you know, this is a question we get whenever we teach confirmation bias and apply it to the Enneagram in some way. People say, well, how, how do you know you're not just falling into confirmation bias? And it's a valid question. And it's something we always have to be looking for. And the way we do is we look for alternative explanations. We look for examples that don't fit the claim and see if we're wrong. And another thing, too, is to, you know, almost reward yourself for changing your mind, right? Almost, you know, taking delight in realizing you were wrong about something because that means you actually just learned something new. So I, th I think you have to bring these three things together in order to uh, try and get around confirmation bias. Well, thanks again, listener. Feel free to send in questions and we will respond to them as we can. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast.